You're listening to the Pines Church Podcast. To learn more, visit thepineschurch.com. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing today? Good? Good. I, you know, I have to, uh, before I dive into the message, uh, I just have to share this. It's been uh, just about an hour and a half ago, I was given some information about a woman that attends our church, a faithful woman who's been with us for, for quite some time. And I received the news. I do not have all of the details, but that she has um, gone on to be with the Lord sometime this week. And as the details come in, I will rally the troops in ways that we can come and be the hands and feet of Jesus to that family. But I just want to recognize uh, Dorothy Goodale, who um, would come in and pray for each and every single one of these seats uh, before you ever sat in them who would pray over the worship, who would pray over the message, who would pray over the children's ministry, who would pray over you and your families, who you've never met in person, uh, that God would be with you throughout the week. And I'm reminded, and it was a gut punch when I heard the news this morning. And, you know, the Bible says to mourn with those who mourn, and Jesus mourned, and there is a time for mourning. But I'm also greatly encouraged because I had the privilege and the opportunity of having Dorothy in our living room and spending a lot of time in Bible study and in prayer. And I know that this is a woman that walked very closely with the Lord. And the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I know that Dorothy right now, although we, te- we mourn and we shed a tear, and rightfully so, Dorothy is in the best place that she could possibly be in the universe. And as it, that is at the side of Jesus. And she has heard those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so I just want to pray over her family right now, um, if we could do that. And so, dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for Dorothy. I thank you for the imprint, the investment, in, in the legacy that she leaves behind, not only in the Pines, but in Central Maine. And Father, right now I pray for her family and her friends and her loved ones, the ones that are mourning her loss this morning, her grandchildren who she spoke so highly of, Lord. I pray that those memories would just um, begin to come back to the surface of their, their mind and that there would be a time of recounting stories, a time of honor, a time of celebration. I know that that comes with tears as well. But I just pray that there would be an awareness of the impact that she made in those individual lives and the legacy of faith that she leaves behind. Father, we thank you that you planted her here at the Pines. And I thank you that she is, at, she, she is, she is next to you right now. And she's probably doing cartwheels, running up and down, yelling and screaming in jubilation. So Lord, thank you for blessing us with her and we entrust her into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, that's the, that's the heart of a believer, is that although we mourn when we, have, we experience loss and suffering, we know that this isn't the end. Paul says that this life is but a vapor, and that's how we can have joy in the midst of trials and tribulations. And so... I'm excited to share this message with you on all I have to say is buckle up buttercup because I'm going to be shooting these scriptures out at you. And so if you've come in from a, a hard week, a, uh, a week of opposition, a week filled with adversity, if you hit the snooze button and almost didn't come to church today because it's been just so much piled on your plate, let me just tell you something, you are in the right 
place, okay? Because I have a word for you. If any of you have turned on your televisions, you see what is going on not only in our culture, but in the culture of our globe. Not only that, but you see these wars and rumors of wars. At the beginning of October, we entered on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur and Sukkot. Um, and this is known as the season of joy. And then whether you watch CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, we saw on October 7th, Hamas um, take the lives of innocent women and children, taking hostages and, and grotesque brutality upon the, upon the people of Israel. And that begun this new chapter of war. And you see these major superpowers beginning to form alliances. And if you don't have a scriptural foundation, it can all be very frightening and scary. Words are thrown around like World War III and, uh, you know, prices of groceries and gas going even higher than it already is. And so, yet on God's calendar, because Israel is the apple of God's eye and we as Gentiles, and a Gentile is simply not a Jew, have been grafted into that vine on God's calendar. This is a season of joy and celebration. And so that's God's season, but in the natural, it doesn't seem to be lining up. And so to kick this off, the message that I carry in my heart I'm going to start with 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. And so he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Hard stop. How many of us, when we go out to our car and we have a flat tire, or our boss brings us in and blames us for something that somebody else did, or just a myriad of different things that can take place and transpire in our life. Do we begin to say, am I doing something wrong? Like what's happening or why is this happening to me? Anybody ever ask that question? Like why the heck is it happening to me? Okay, I'm the only one, but I promise you it happens, okay? And Peter is telling us, don't act as if something's strange. In fact, that's normal for the believer. So whoever told you that, you know, give your life, surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus and everything will be easier. I don't know what they told you, but that is not indeed the life of a believer. However, I do have good news. Okay, let's keep reading. It says, instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. Everybody say suffering. Suffering so that you will have wonderful joy of seeing his glory revealed to all the world. So I want to hone in on that, that pairing of words, very glad. Peter is telling us when you go through suffering, you and trials, you should actually be very glad. Okay. I looked that up in the Greek and this is what I found. It means very glad. It means to be overjoyed, to be beyond pleased, to be extremely delighted. So let me just give you a scenario in case you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around what this means. Suppose you are selling your home, let's just say for $200,000, and you get a call from your realtor and the realtor says, hey, 
I got a buyer. This guy wants to buy your home. You're like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. Okay, that's pleased. But then he says, no, no, no. Actually, there, there's more to it than that. He knows that you're offering 200, but he wants to give you 400,000. Well, if you receive that news, you would be very glad. You would be overjoyed. You would be beyond pleased. And so that is the language that Peter is using of the outlook we should have when we navigate the trials and tribulations of this world. But can we be honest? That is not how most of us approach adversity. Am I right? We begin to think something strange. Am I sinning? Why is this befalling me? And we begin to go through a list of things of why this may be happening. But Jesus promised that in this life, we will have trials. He goes on to say in Acts 5.41, they went rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Everybody say suffer. Suffer. Romans 8.36, we are heirs of Christ if indeed we suffer with him. Say suffer. 2 Corinthians 1.7, knowing that we also are sharers of your sufferings. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We are going to go through trials and tribulations in this world. It is promised to us as a believer. So here's Peter saying, when you go through those, you should be very glad. Well, I must be missing something because trials are extremely difficult and I don't enjoy them. I'm not overjoyed when I go through them. So clearly, There's a disconnect between the way I look at trials and maybe the way that you look at trials and the way that Peter looks at trials. So I need to do a little bit more digging to see how Peter could possibly, and you got to understand this, all scripture is, is inspired through the Holy Spirit. So Peter can't exaggerate because exaggeration is a lie. You know, when you exaggerate, you know, when you go fishing and you hold the fish out like this and you have your buddy take a picture and the fish looks like this, but the fish is really like this big. Oh, come on, do remain. Ain't none of you ever done that before. Okay. It's hunting season. Okay. Oh, I just missed. It was like a 36 point buck, man. It was, it was huge, right? We exaggerate. But God can't exaggerate because exaggerating is a lie. So Peter, in order to be able to pen these words, had to believe them. So the purpose of these trials and tribulations in this suffering is very simple. It's to bring us to the end of ourselves. The end of our intellect, the end of our experience, the end of our gifting. So that when we come to that very end, that line right there, and we take our first step, It's a step of faith. And when we take that step of faith, we are reliant upon God in a way that we've never been reliant before. And our trust in God goes to deeper levels. One could even make the argument, if you could handle these trials and tribulations in your own strength, in your own intellect, in your own gifting, where does God enter the equation? Right? If you can go into a gym and easily press 135 for 50 50 reps, where are you beginning to break down your muscle in order to be able to develop new muscle and get bigger and get stronger? You're doing it in your own strength. 
And so this is the starting line that we begin to become dependent on God. Number two, I want to I I highlight that in 1 Peter, he's telling us that there is a joy made available to us in the midst of suffering. Now, if you've been with me since the beginning of when we planted this church, this is a reoccurring message. I would say this is like my life message. This is a message that I believe through and through because I see a major lack in the body of Christ is the message of joy. And I, I, I really, it breaks my heart when I see Christians depressed, riddled with anxiety, riddled with fear, when I know that Christ paid a great price for us to walk in joy in the midst of our sufferings. So there's kind of these different camps sometimes in church. There's people that say, oh, there's no suffering. Everything's easy. Everything's, you know, good in life. And then when you go through hardship, you're like, I'm not prepared for this. How am I supposed to go through this? And then there are other people that grit their teeth and they're like, yeah, we're meant to suffer and we're just lowly worms and it doesn't matter. And, you know, at least we get to go to heaven one day. But I, I just want to share with you that there's a joy in the midst of our suffering and adversity. Amelia Boone um, is a female racer, and uh, she, fight, she, she raced in the, in the Tough Mudder and the Spartan race, and she was beating men. And she had this amazing quote. She said, I'm not the strongest and I'm not the fastest, but I'm really good at suffering. Now, first glance, you may look at that and say, what is she, a masochist? Like, what the heck does that mean? She has found a way to get her eyes off of herself in the midst of those moments of suffering, in the midst of those moments of, of adversity, and put her eyes beyond to the finish line and been able to endure things that others around her haven't been able to endure because their eyes are fixed on what's happening to them. So there's something that we can learn from this statement. See, the disciples lived this out. And to show you, I'm going to kind of jump into, okay, James 1, 2 through 4. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, the NLT says troubles of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. I don't know about you, but I would like to be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. I am not currently perfect, but I am in a process of being perfected. And so are you if you're willing to yield to the Lord in the midst of those trials and tribulations. First of all, if James tells us to count it all joy when we face trials, that means it's possible. And not only that, it's not a suggestion, but rather a command. The scripture also shows us that we don't, our joy isn't attached to our circumstances. We don't find joy in the midst of our circumstances. In other words, I'll have joy when the sun's out and everything's going well, but when everything's hard, then I won't have joy. Have you ever had that mindset of like, if I just get through this, then I can smile, then I can be happy, and then I can loosen up a little bit, only to find that once you get through that, whatever trial it was, that another one's awaiting you on the other side, and then you've strung together six months of not smiling, of not enjoying life, it's a very easy pattern to slip into. And so I want to also make the distinction that what I'm not saying, I'm not saying 
that the Bible says to deny our circumstances, but rather not be defined by them. There are people that try to paint and project an image like everything's fine, right? And that's, that's not good either. Pretending like everything's good, but meanwhile, you're falling apart, right? We need to be children of the light, meaning that we live in the light. We don't hide. We don't hide behind a mask. We don't project an image and paint a picture that everything's good when it's not good. But what this is telling us is that we're not defined if we're going through a difficult season, that we can still have joy in the midst of these trials and tribulations. So a question we have to ask ourselves, especially as we enter into Christmas, is what is joy? Right? It's a word that gets tossed around in songs. It's a word that gets tossed around at Christmas. But really, what is the biblical definition of joy? And this is the definition that I came up with in studying many concordances, uh, the Hebrew, the Greek. I put this together, and I believe this is one of the best definitions of joy. And it is this. Joy is living in the awareness of God's goodness, faithfulness, and redemptive power. Now, let me just, let me, let me tell you what happened because I've, I've shared this definition many times and some of you are new and some of you have been here for a little bit, but most of you in this room probably nodded your head and said, yeah, I know that. I know God's good, right? Who doesn't know that? I know that God redeems. I, I, I know that. But how many of you know there's a difference between knowing something and living in something? I know, right, that if I cut pasta out of my diet and worked on my abs every single day, that I could have a six-pack. But I am not currently living in that reality. Why? Because I'm Italian and I love pasta and it's just not in the cards for me, okay? But there's a difference between knowing something and living in something. The demons recognized and knew that Jesus was the son of God, but they were not living under that reality of him being their Lord. So although they knew, they did not live like that. Does that make sense? We can never get over this truth of God's goodness, faithfulness, and redemptive power. That is how we can have joy in the midst of trials and tribulations that no matter what the enemy mounts against us or our enemies mount against us, God can flip it. God can redeem it. God is good. God is faithful to his word. So what does joy do? The Bible says in Nehemiah 8.10 that the joy of the Lord is our strength. I want you to think about that. Your strength isn't found in your intellect, your gifting, your experience, or any physical attribute that you can possess. Your joy, your strength rather, is found in the joy of the Lord. It's understanding that upon salvation, we now abide in him. And that the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead dwells on the inside of us. Richard Foster said it like this. It's joy, not grit. That's the hallmark of holy obedience. There's some church circles that, you know, focus in on. We just got to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we need to continue to press through. When God has given us his joy as our strength, 
No, joy is the distinguishing mark of a believer. And not only is it possible in any, in all circumstances, it's actually expected. Now, how do we cultivate this joy? And I'm going to kind of camp out for the next probably 10 minutes in the book of Philippians because Paul has a lot to say about this word joy in Philippians. But let me just give you a little bit of a history lesson, a little bit of a uh, kind of a cultural context and historical context, okay? Paul wrote the letter to the church of Philippi, okay? But what you have to understand is this. Paul was in jail. He had been in jails for a couple of years, facing possible execution. So he's in jail, he's been in jail, and he's facing execution. Not only that, he had been beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, bitten by a snake. And that was just from his enemies. Many in the faith were actually distancing themselves from Paul, preaching out of selfish ambition and pride. So if there was ever a low moment in Paul's life, like he was there, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had, he had achieved the highest note of honor and popularity. And he walked away from that because he had that Damascus road experience. And he went and he preached the gospel. And now he finds himself imprisoned. He finds himself, his brothers now distancing themselves from him. But he discovered something in that prison cell where Paul highlights Joy 15 times. Again, going back to Peter uttering those words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul could not append these words if he did not believe them and if they were not from the Lord. And so in this prison cell, not knowing if he was ever going to see the light of day again, he feverishly writes this letter to the church, all the way 2,000 years later, to you and me, so that we don't miss this truth that joy can be found in the midst of suffering, trials, and tribulations. And so I'm going to be sharing some of these scriptures with you, and I hope that your hearts are open to be able to receive this because I know that it's going to position you and empower you to endure things, to overcome things that you just can't overcome and endure in your own strength. So number one, Philippians 4.4 says this, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I always think of this song, you know, we sing it back in the night. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, again, I say rejoice. My wife's telling me not to do that, but. But Paul is so confident in this truth that he doubles down and he repeats himself. Have you ever been having a conversation with somebody and you share something with them and you're, you're like, I don't want you to miss this. You repeat it again. And so Paul is so confident, he repeats it. What is rejoice? We find that word all throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And it gets thrown around at Christmas as well. Well, re is a prefix, right? It means it comes from repeat. Joy is, Joyce is joy. So 
it means to take joy in the things that God has already done for you. You know, most of us very easily could conjure a list of all the things that we're believing God for, of all the things that are going wrong in our life. But how many of us can compile a list of the things that we're grateful for, of the things that we're thankful for? I love that we started out, and I didn't even talk um, to Nicole with thanking God. Because I believe that's the way that each and every single one of us should start our day is by rejoicing, giving God thanks for the things that he has already done. In fact, this has become, it's become a custom and a discipline in my life. When I wake up and my feet hit the ground, the very first thing I do before anybody else is up is go downstairs and make coffee because that too is a source of strength and I need coffee in order to be able to give God thanks or I'm just gonna be falling asleep and trailing off. But after I make the coffee and I'm waiting for it to, to brew, I just go through a list. Lord, thank you for my health. Lord, thank you that I have a roof over my head. Father, thank you that you've entrusted me with the privilege of being able to plant the Pines Church Father, thank you for my friends. Thank you that I have food in the refrigerator. Lord, thank you that I met my wife in my frosted tips, cool water, cologne, creed listening days. That is a miracle in itself that she fell for me in that time. My hair is to my shoulders. So where there is, uh, where there is no way, God will make a way for you. And you go through this list and what you do is you enthrone God in your praises. You put God on the throne of your heart. So no matter what the enemy has mounted for you that day, right? You've already built God up so much in your heart. You've recounted his faithfulness. You've recounted his goodness. You've recounted his redemptive power to take a messed up situation and turn it around for his glory that you can just simply step over it. But the problem is when you don't do that, Okay, and you head out for work that day, a flat tire can hijack your mood, your relationships, your conversations, the way you engage and interact with your boss at work, just because you had a flat tire. And you add it to the list of all the things that are going wrong in your life. In fact, I would venture to say that most of us have no problem running through our minds everything that's going wrong. And we actually have to work at going through our minds and rehearsing everything that God has done right and everything that we should be thankful for and grateful for. But Paul doesn't stop there. Let's keep reading. In Philippians 4.8, he says this, Dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. I love the way that he starts this out. One final thing, like, oh, don't leave yet. I have one more thing, and this is a big one that I need to share with you. Paul is trying to convey, do not miss this. I want to focus. He said, fix your thoughts. You only fix something if it's broken, right? If your thoughts, your thought life Paul says we got to take an inventory of what we're thinking about, right? If your thought life doesn't line up under, under what is honorable, what is pure, what is lovely, what is right, 
in what is admirable, then your thinking is broken. And some of us are spinning our wheels, lending our mental real estate to things that we simply should not be thinking about. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we take our thoughts captive and we make them obedient to Christ. It doesn't say God does, it says we do. So there's an authority that Christ paid a great price to give us where we cast down those vain imaginations. We cast down those thoughts that are causing us to spin our wheels. If it doesn't line up under one of those areas, then we cut it. And that word think, I really don't think we spend a lot, I really don't think, we don't spend a lot of time thinking. You know, our phones think for us, our calculators think for us, our politicians think for us, and we don't spend a lot of time thinking. That, a better translation of that word think is actually meditate. And don't let that word scare you. It's not like you, you need to sit crisscross applesauce and open up your third eye. It literally, a good way to look at meditate, meditation is actually a biblical idea, okay? And it's been hijacked, but meditation, a way for you to wrap your mind around it is simply like this. It's the digestive system of the soul. So as you take a scripture and you think about it, you're, you're meditating on it. You're, you're inviting the Holy Spirit to illuminate it to you, to show you. That's how you can read scripture, maybe the same scripture a hundred times. And then one day, all of a sudden you see something that you'd never seen before. That's the Holy Spirit opening up your eyes as you spent time to meditate on that verse. God is showing you things that you couldn't previously see. And so I kind of I, I want to conclude with this. The enemy wants to steal your joy, to weaken you. That's why he wants to rob you of your joy. That's why he wants you knee deep in depression and anxiety and fear. Do you know the number one commandment in the Bible is do not fear? 365 times it's in there. And that's the only tactic really of the enemy is to get you to fear. His hope is that in your weakened state that you'll abandon your, your trust in God and his word. And think about it. What's the first thing you do when you begin to become riddled with fear? You begin to isolate, pull away from your community of faith, stop going to church, stop spending time in his word. So the, this is the enemy's tactic. It's out in the open for all of us to be able to see. So we won't be deceived when he plays this card on our life. See, here's the thing. Jesus wasn't depressed. In fact, his enemies accused him of being too joyful. When we find ourselves seeped in these thoughts and we begin to lose ground to them, it's, it's just an indicator that we're, we're drifting away from God. Okay? I've been in places where I've gotten down. You know, I, I used to struggle with, um, I used to struggle with worry. But what I told myself, it was problem solving. So I don't know if there's any problem solvers in the house, but I used to take something and I used to just, I'm problem solving. I'm looking at it from every single angle and I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to crack the Da Vinci code and figure out how I can get through this trial on my own. But you know what I was really doing? I was worrying. And the Lord has invited me to cast my worries, to cast my cares, to cast my concerns onto his shoulders. He says, that his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Do we feel like that? 
Come to me, ye that are heavy laden, and you will find rest. Are we walking in that rest? If not, it's an, we need to, and it's a, it's a flashing engine light that something's off. And we need to let go of some things. Because the Bible says in Psalm 1611, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. I want you to think about that. He says, fullness of joy. In order for there to be fullness, that means there can be, some of us could be riding in on half a tank of joy. And some of you could have made it into church today on running on fumes. And I don't know about you, but I want to have fullness of joy. John 15 tells us that if we abide in him, if we remain in his love and keep his commandments, our joy will be complete, not incomplete. So we can go through life with an incomplete joy, with partial joy, with a quarter of tank of joy. And some of you in this room may feel like that. And can you imagine going through the trials and tribulations of this world and you've only got a quarter tank of gas? You've got no strength. And God is saying, if you let go of these things and you enter into my presence, if you abide in me and stay in my love and keep my commandments, you will be filled with joy. You will be filled with strength. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. I love the way that Tertullian says this. You can go ahead and stand too. Tertullian, a great father in the faith, said this. The closer one comes to God, the more joy is experienced. Joy based not on circumstances or passing emotions, but the joy of the Lord that comes from knowing him. Remember when we went back to James and to Peter, our joy isn't based on our circumstances. Our joy comes from being in relationship with the Father, abiding in him, letting go of the things that he has not called you to carry. Some of you are carrying some things and some of you have been through some hard stuff. And again, we don't deny the circumstances. We don't deny the hardships that you've had to endure. But you gotta let it go. It's not yours to carry. See, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It ripens and matures by spending time with God in worship and prayer in fellowship, in study, and in service. Again, it's not enough to just know it. We must live it. So please, don't believe the lie that joy can only be experienced in the absence of pain. Be diligent to give God thanks in all areas and all seasons of your life. Fix your thoughts on the things that are eternal that will outlast your trials and tribulations. You see, this is how Paul could say at the end of this letter that he's writing in prison, not knowing if he's ever going to see any of his brothers and sisters again. Paul pens these words. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any in every situation, 
whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. Christ who gives me joy. Christ who takes my burdens and my anxiety and my fear and my worry and in this beautiful exchange gives me a joy that surpasses this world and anything the enemy can mount against me. Do you understand that you, when you have this joy, no one can take it away? No one can take it away because it's not based on the things of this world. I want you to close your eyes. Maybe you find yourself in this room today because your friend kept nagging you, family member kept blowing you up on text message and you're like, finally, to appease my friend, to appease my mom, I'll come to church, I'll check the box and then move on with my life. And as I've shared the word, something started to take place inside of your heart. You didn't hear the preacher's voice. You heard the voice inside of the voice. And you said, I want a relationship with God. I want to know that my eternity is secure. I want to walk in that joy that he was talking about. I want to let go of all this stuff I've been hoarding and carrying through life that's weighing me down and preventing me from running my race. But I don't know how to do it. The answer is found in surrendering your life. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, said you will be saved. It doesn't say you might be saved. It doesn't say you could be. It doesn't say magic eight ball, 50-50 chance. It says you will. But that word Lord is a word we don't use very often in the church. You know, the word Savior is found 36 times in Scripture. The word Lord, over 7,500. Where do you think God puts the emphasis? Lord means that you've surrendered your life fully to Him. That you elevate the Word of God above what you see, feel, and experience. That you repent of your sin and your wickedness. And repent just simply means to turn away and to embrace the truth of his word. And God says, when you repent of your sin, it is as far as the east is to the west. He offers you his forgiveness. He offers you salvation and eternal life. And if that's you in this room, I wanna lead you in a prayer of surrender. I want you to raise your hand. We're all gonna pray it. You came in today you say, Matt, I want to I know that my life is in right standing with the Lord. I want to lead you in that prayer. Okay, we're in good, we're in good company. Everybody else, I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you receive this joy, that it truly is a strength, that it doesn't 
just stay in this ethereal concept of like, yeah, Matt, that's great, but how do I practically walk that out? That the Holy Spirit would show you how to let go of your past, how to let go of your sin, how to let go of the anger and the vitriol that you've been harboring all these years so that you have room and capacity to hold that joy, to steward that joy. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for everybody under the sound of my voice. I thank you for the tenderness of their hearts, Lord. I thank you for their willingness to yield their lives to you. And I pray that you would make yourself real to them in a way today that they've never experienced before. That you would whisper to their hearts that you love them and that you're never going to leave nor forsake them. That you would show them how to loosen the grip of their past, loosen the grip of their anger, loosen the grip of their addiction, and to, tr to lay it down at the foot of the cross. And in that exchange, God, that you would place your joy, your peace, in your love. Lord, I pray that even in this moment, that you would reveal to them how much you love them. That you pray that you paid the greatest ransom in the universe to be in relationship with them. Lord, let them walk away forever changed. And we give you the praise and the glory and the honor forever. In Jesus' name, amen. And let's give them thanks in advance. Thank you all so much. I can't wait to see you next week. Until next time, Godspeed. Thank you so much for listening to the Pines Church Podcast, a sermon resource provided by the Pines Church in Bangor, Maine. We'd love to hear from you, so leave us a review on this podcast. If you have any questions, visit thepineschurch.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.